Today we're going to cover Psalm 73. I ask you that you please open in your Bibles Psalm 73. And just a little tip here. If you have a physical Bible, that would be better later on. There's something we would do later on. Just because of physical Bible, it's easier to scan around, and we're going to scan around a few places in the Bible. If you don't have it, that's okay. Let us start reading Psalm 73. It's a Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as a pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is burdened. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches, and surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued, and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have been untrue to the, to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went to, into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continued with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven with you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for heraldry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your words. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, our Father, we ask you that you would open our minds and our hearts to your word. Lord, shut off all other thoughts, competing thoughts, preoccupations, things that may run into our minds, distractions. Help us, Lord, in this time. Help me as I explain your word that your Holy Spirit would Work in the hearts of those listening tonight. 
Help us, Lord. May these words be life to us, correction if need be, guidance if need be, encouragement if need be. Oh, Lord, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, why should we draw near to God? What should motivate a believer to seek God? Should we expect material prosperity for Christians? Should Christians be, would Christians be more healthier or wealthier than other people because they are seeking God? Do we have a correspondence between seeking God and any sort of difference in your life? Because it costs, it costs you to serve God. It costs you to seek Jesus. It costs you to repent and to seek him. Why we go to all the trouble of denying oneself and following Jesus? What do we have to gain with it? Now in Psalm 73, Asaph addresses this topic by pondering whether godliness is worthwhile or just a big waste of time. He starts with, in verses 1 to 3, presenting in, in, in his introduction. First, he states truth, a general truth. In verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. This general truth is the maxim that will permeate the whole Hebrew poem. All the stanzas will refer back to this idea, either affirming it or questioning it. Now, note that the psalmist states the general truth about the collective, the people of God. God is good to Israel. And surely, we can see by the Old Testament examples that he had access to, it seemed that God was constantly promising that he was going to do good to Israel. He was going to be good to Israel. And he also asserts something that is a, a general truth to individuals, to such as our pure in heart. So God not only is good to his people in general, but also it seems that he promised things to those that seek him within the people of Israel. This is a general truth. You can see in the examples, it's not stated clearly you don't have a certain verse of the Bible that would say that in those exact words. But in all the stories, especially of the Old Testament, which is a bad access to you, you see that God promising good to those who seek him and to his people of Israel. And then he goes on verse 2 and 3 to present the theme of this psalm. This is not a psalm about God's goodness. This is a psalm about the reality of life. When, he, when push comes to the shove, uh, we see, we sometimes question that. But as for me, verse two, uh, actually verse, verse three, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We now turn to the main theme of the psalm, the apparent incongruence between the general truth stated in verse 1 and the seemingly prosperous and happy life that people that don't seek God and deny God live. Because let's admit that there's a lot of people there. We have plenty of examples of people 
who deny God, who reject, reject him to, to their clearly, openly, and yet don't seem to be punished by They seem to the contrary, they seem to prosper. They seem to have healthier lives, happier lives, wealthier lives. And this is what the psalmist is going to talk about in this whole psalm. Now, he confesses finding it difficult to understand this paradox. And he admits that he almost slipped, he almost stumbled in his one with the Lord. Now, in the next verses, he will present the evidence for this. So he's stating the problem, but he's going to present the evidence. Now, let's go to verse 4. For there are no pangs in their death. He's referring to the ungodly or the wicked. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. So here the psalmist presents the evidence for his case. The ungodly seem to live a happy life, a prosperous life, despite their rebellion to God. They seem to not have as many struggles as the godly have. Sometimes because of their wicked schemes, they're even able to amass more wicked, more, more wealth than, than anyone else. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. This is sort of a consequence, right? Like a child that is not punished when they do, do wrong, they become boastful in their wrongdoing. So, the wicked, when they curse God to God's face, when they do something that they know is wrong, but they are not annihilated the next second, well, that fills them with pride and boast because of that. And prominent pride is a remarkable trait in being lovely. Any unbeliever has a certain level of pride in their hearts. A pride for being, living life their own way and not being, apparently not being punished by this seemingly just God. And so their violence, and you can understand their violence as also their injustice, their immorality, their unrighteousness. They can't hide it. It becomes part of their life. It goes before them, you see, like a necklace, like something they are dressed on. It goes before them. Wherever they go, their proudly attitude and immoral behavior goes before them. They can't hide it. Let's look at verse 7. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks with evil. In fact, the, their abundance is the very cause of their thought. The fact that they have plenty, but do not thank God for his blessing upon them, despite their disobedience. In the end, will be something that will accuse them in the last day. Now, they set their mouth against heaven. We read this in verse, in verse 9. They set their mouth against the heavens. You can understand they set their mouth against God. So many people we see around like that. I, I, I understand that at this point, you realize that what Asaph was seeing is not new. And didn't stop there. You see it around us. Christians feel that. That's our daily experience. Right? 
Now let's read verse 10. Therefore his people return here in waters of a full cup. Waters of a full cup are drained by them. What could this verse mean? At first when I read this in the New King James, I couldn't understand it. I looked around it. Hear what the ESV, how the ESV puts it. The same verse. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. It seems to imply that ordinary people, when looking at the ungodly or great ungodly people, people that are successful and are ungodly, they can't find a problem with them. They instead admire their attitude. They have a sort of envy. So instead of realizing that they are arrogant and proudly boasting against God. People look at them and go, oh, I want to be like them. It's a materialistic view of life, right? When you only see the material, then you don't see God's justice. You don't see sin. You only see the material and you envy the material prosperity that some ungodly people don't have. Let's turn to verse 11. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? This is the question that the world does ask to us, Christians, every, well, every once in a while, depending on the context every day. How is there a God living? It couldn't be. If there is a God, they say, then he can't be unknowing. How does God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? This is a bit, basically the flesh crying, crying rebellion to God. Trying to not accept God's existence, diminishing God. Now, so far I've painted a very grim picture of the song and a very grim picture of religion and life with God. Because if that's true, why then we should we serve God? And that's what Asaph addresses in verses 12 to 14. Behold, he sort of summarizes in verse 12 the whole evidence he's just presented to us. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease, the increasing riches. And then he goes to the, to the logical conclusion of the whole argument in verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. And wash my hands in innocence, for all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. From a mere, mere pragmatic perspective, really, serving God is nonsense. Or it doesn't, it doesn't need anything in your life. It doesn't improve your life. If anything, it creates more problems, because now you have sin everywhere. You see sin everywhere. Because now you have this force saying to you that you're wrong. That you must repent. From a materialistic point of view, serving God is not worth it. And indeed, suffering shouldn't come as a surprise to any Christian. We are not called to live a life of success. We are called to live a life after the steps of our Savior, who led us by example and suffered. Suffered to fulfill the will of God. We're called to nothing less than that. So suffering shouldn't come as a surprise in the Christian life. And then the psalmist here 
goes even further. It looks back to the past, tries to analyze how the people of God lived, trying to understand this, trying to wrap around his head with, with this idea. In verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, it would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Here we see that Asaph didn't voice this concern and this doubt to other people, but he was pondering it, thinking about the people of God. The life and hope of the believers that walked before him. And quite didn't understand this experience he was seeing doesn't seem to match what, what they had in their hearts. What kept them moving? What kept them going? Well, what is that? If you think about it, why did Abraham wander in his own promised land for so many years? What gain did he have? He never really saw God's promise being realized in his life. He never saw the great nation. He left. He died with two sons, but one, the promised one. And he didn't see the 12, the 12 tribes that would come out of him. You think about Moses. Moses lived most of his life in the desert either in the wilderness of, of medium or in wandering through the wilderness with the Israelites. He never saw, but he saw the promised land on his last day of life. Never entered it. He never saw the children of Israel conquering the land. But what kept him going? What kept them going? That's the question here. Why? If they have the same information, the same data, it doesn't seem that there is a reward, a correlation for being godly. You don't get better houses. You don't get a better life because you're serving God. Why do you keep going? Well, let's read verse, verse 17. Until I went to the sanctuary of your God, then I understood their end. So it was too painful for the psalmist when he thought to understand this until he went into the sanctuary of God, into the very presence of God. And here's a turning point, the apex of the psalm. It's all about God, the sanctuary of God, the place of the Almighty. Where does God live? Does he live in time? No. God sees beyond time. He lives beyond time. It's all about eternity. And then he understands in verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. The ungodly stand on slippery ground. Their ground will not hold in time of adversity and their ground will not hold forever. One day they will move and they'll fall and they'll realize how great was their fall. All their stability and assurance are just as quick and ephemeral as, as a dream, a forgotten dream. You see here the, the idea in verse 20, as a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Just like we forget dreams when we wake up. God will forget them and they will fall into, into complete everything that they have will fade. 
Just like that. Just like a forgotten dream. When God awakes. Let's turn to verse 21. Those my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. You see here, the psalmist confesses wrongful thinking. He was thinking the wrong way. Yes, the wicked, wicked don't, are not, are not, they're not punished by their wickedness right away. Yes, but that's not the way he should be thinking. So what you notice here, the verbs, the intensity of the verbs, grieved and vexed. Just, it's not just a change of mere emotion. He's not just saddened. It turns everything within himself. His heart, his mind, his whole being. He realizes he's been focusing on the wrong thing and his feet almost slipped. Now, let's read. 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and whatever. And afterward, receive me to glory. God's mercy towards his servant is steadfast. You see, the psalmist realizes that even when he was in the wrong, God wasn't in the wrong and God wasn't away. He was still there. And he is able to understand by this experience. The long-suffering of God. Really, because we think foolish things and we sometimes are almost tempted to fault because we are focusing on the wrong thing. But God is patient. He's patient with us. He waits. In, in due time, he corrects us. What a great thing. And you see in verse 24, the key word here is glory. God has in mind eternity. He's thinking about eternity. God is thinking and planning and doing things, thinking of eternity. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. The psalmist wasn't thinking about glory in all the verses we've seen so far. He wasn't. He was just thinking about this earthly life. And yes, sure, if we are to think of God and our Christ for this life, we are to be pitied. Really? Remember that? Saul said that. If we are to have Christ and God only for this life, we should be pitied. Really. Let's keep going. And here is one of the great, greatest verses of the whole book of Psalms, I think. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Why should we follow God? Why should we seek God? What should be the central focus and concern of the believer? God. God himself. The pure delight of God. Of seeing him. Of knowing him. Of enjoying him. This is what kept Abraham going. You remember back in Exodus or in Genesis. If you go back to Genesis, you don't have to go back. But here is a good time when if you have a physical bottle, you can scan through it. Go back to Genesis 15. We have this marvelous thing. In chapter 14, 
Abraham is at the apex of his life. He is really a rich man, a powerful man, and he goes after four kings and wins over them and brings back Lot with only his household servants and a few other allies. He's blessed by a king and priest, Melchizedek. And then at the beginning of chapter 15, God talks to him and says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceeding, exceedingly great reward. And we see the answer that Abraham had. He wasn't feeling good. He wasn't feeling the top cat. He was actually worried. Worried about what? Lord, you, what do you give me, seeing that I go childless? In the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He then goes on, verse 3. Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. He was concerned. He had riches. He had power. But he didn't have what he wanted. He wanted an heir. And then God promises him an heir, makes a pact with him, and gives him an heir, miraculously, as we know. But then, later on, God tests him. Do you really want an heir? There's one condition. I'm going forth in the new year. Go and sacrifice this year, this son, for me. And he tests Abraham. He tests Abraham's longing for God against his most precious thing in life, his son. You look at Moses. Why? Why Moses kept going? Because he wanted to see the glory of God. Remember when he asked God, oh Lord, I can't go without you. Show me your glory. He didn't need you to do that. He had plenty of proof that God was with him. But he longed for God. Not for proof that he was doing right. For God himself. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. Verse 26 of Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The believer should draw his strength from God. Like Paul, they should rejoice in their weakness. They should rejoice that they're seeing people prospering, but they are not prospering. Oh, rejoice in that? Yes. Rejoice that you have a better, a better inheritance. You have God, God himself gave himself for you so that you may have a relationship with him, a true relationship. Verse 27, for indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Harlotry is often a word that God uses, especially in the prophets, to refer to those people that serve God and then they run away and serve other gods. Harlotry. Those people that have other priorities, put Anything on the place of God that is not God could be a physical, actual idol or anything else, you name it. We have many gods, right? People have many gods. 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your words. You probably have in your, in your Bible there, Lord God. Lord, capital L, lower, O-R-D, and then God, capital G, capital O, capital D. Lord, Adonai, and God, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. 
that name that he revealed to Moses in the bush, in the burning bush. I have put my trust in Adonai Yahweh or in, in the Lord Jehovah, that I may declare all your works. So why should we draw near to God? It's to know him, to learn to trust him, to have an intimate relationship with him. And from this, we will flow work for him, service for him. From this, we will flow a desire to declare his works. But don't get it wrong. The main point is, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Is that our longing? Is there anything else we are longing for? We can desire health. We can desire wealth. We can desire family, friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But what should be your main and ultimate desire? Not even to be considered religious. Not even to be seen as religious or godly. No, no, no. Our main desire should be God. A relationship with God. God is not a vending machine. We press the bright button and get something. He wants a relationship with us. You see, God uses these terms uh, comparing human relationships with the relationship he has with his people. We are his bride. We are his bride. What an intimate relationship. We are his children. We we, we could, he could have used all the other terms, but he chooses to do that so that we will realize the true nature of our relationship with God. Now let us make the psalmist's words our own. Let us meditate on this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you.